Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our gospel reading this morning is taken from Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 40. The Gospel of the Lord. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he answered to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she had not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Riley. The question we're going to be looking at today is how we change, how we become different people than what we are now. It's an underlying question in the text that we're going to turn to, which is Galatians chapter 5. We've been looking at the scandalous gospel of Jesus, and uh, now we're at, at chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. If you'd follow along as I read, this is the word of Christ through his apostle Paul. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, this is the Jewish ritual that makes you Jewish, not the medical thing that involves the same operation. If you let yourself do this, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, If I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. But as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Any questions? What do we see here? We see a question. How can you change? It's the big question that these uh, Jewish Christian teachers were focusing on. Realize these teachers 
we're viewing change, uh, a transformed, radically transformed life in obedience to the Mosaic Code as necessary for salvation. Simply trusting your life to Jesus was not enough for them. Uh, they were saying that you had to to apply all of the Hebrew biblical code with all of its principles and all of its regulations to your life as well. They they weren't denying that people had to believe in Jesus. They were professing Christians, these teachers who had infiltrated the Galatian churches. But but what they were offering was a larger program of personal transformation, a program likely beginning with faith in Jesus, but then proceeding on to actually become Jewish by being circumcised if you were male. And that, of course, was only the beginning of it, because beyond that, you would then begin to apply all the Hebrew rituals and codes and regulations, including food laws and clothing laws and various regulations about how you spend your time and how you interact with various types of people. And Paul talks about circumcision, and he means the Jewish ritual that makes you Jewish outwardly, but but he's using that term as shorthand for the whole deal, the whole enchilada, the whole program of religious self-help through rigorous, legalistic, disciplined behavior modification. And he says in verse 3, he says, again I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that He's obligated to obey the whole law. This thing was a package deal. If you have to become Jewish and live out a righteous Jewish life, then you've got to do the whole thing. It's not all grace, grace, grace with these teachers. They want to see changed lives, and and they're thinking that you can have an assurance of salvation once your life is finally changed and you're obeying all the laws and you're obedient to the commandments of Moses. And Paul uh, uh, is getting really, really, really angry here. Um, how angry. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. He's saying, listen, when you're doing the circumcision, just go real deep. Remove the whole thing. This is really angry. This is like Jesus with his whip driving money changers out of the court of the Gentiles uh, in the temple. This, this is when the Apostle Paul goes off color. You know he's hot around the collar, and this is really a big deal. It's bad. Why would St. Paul get so angry about these Jewish Christian teachers? Well, it's because by adding to the gospel the good news about Jesus' salvation, what they're actually doing is subtracting from the gospel. He says in verse 4, you who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. And that's a serious warning. He calls what these religious leaders are teaching in verse 1 a yoke of slavery. That means this teaching will take people who have been freed in Christ and make them prisoners again. Prisoners of their guilt. Prisoners of their shame. Prisoners on a never-ending cycle of performance and obligation. Sisyphus always pushing the rock up the hill only to see it fall back and have to push it up again. Constantly trying to measure up. Constantly trying to be good enough, precise enough, righteous enough, holy enough, praying enough, reading your Bible enough, obeying enough, being detailed about how you tied your kitchen spices. You know, that's what they're calling for. And he says that slavery, you'll have no hope of release in this life, you know, no certainty of eternal life in the coming age. And Paul says, on top of that, it doesn't even work. It's kind of counterintuitive, the point he makes. You would expect that a religion that says that you have to perform in order to get God's blessing would actually make people perform. If you say you'll go to heaven and God will bless you if you do X, Y, and Z consistently over and over and over again, then you'd expect people to then start doing X, Y, and Z over and over and over again. But it doesn't actually work. Uh, you know, 
we would think that it would be like being a senior in college when you, you know, made straight A's, you've taken all the advanced placement classes, you got like a 4.5 GPA out of 4.0, you, you, you're, you're on all the teams, you're, you're the star student, and then you get the acceptance letter to Yale, and then you start making C's for the rest of the year. What do we call that? Senioritis. You would think, you know, it works on a horizontal level in that you, you try really, really hard, and then once you got the reward, it's like, I'm not even going to class. I'm already in. And, and we would think that it, spiritually that would, that would translate, and yet Paul is saying it doesn't work at the heart level, not in any meaningful sense. It may get short-term results. It may get external results, but it doesn't get ultimate heart-level results. It's what he says in verse 5, uh, that the gospel is what will lead to a real righteousness of standing before God in the future as one who is actually transformed and holy, not just declared righteous, but transformed by his grace into glory. Richard uh, Lovelace compares spiritual transformation to, to an iron bar that has been bent. You can imagine like a heavy, thick piece of, of metal, you know, hollow tube, but really heavy stuff, iron, and it's somehow gotten bent and he says there are two ways to actually go about straightening the rod. You can apply an equal and opposite amount of pressure in the opposite direction to bend it back and eventually make the rod straight again. But what's the problem with you do that? It, it's become weaker by having been bent. And, and chances are if you bend it just one more time a little bit further, it's going to snap in two because it looks straight, but inwardly it's, it's more broken than it was before after all of that external pressure. But there's another way to straighten out a bent rod of iron. You can put the rod of iron in the fire, in the furnace, and heat it up. And let that heat get inside of it and transform it. And it begins to glow. And it becomes soft. And then once it's warm and glowing and the heat has done its work inside the metal, you can bend the metal very gently back straight. And it's actually stronger than it was before because it has been tempered. And it's the same way with spiritual growth. There are multiple ways to actually outwardly change your behavior. You can get the accountability partner. You can get the app. You can, you can get, you know, people checking in on you. You can do all sorts of external things or not go to certain places and all of that. And, and yet that doesn't necessarily do anything to help you on the inside. And it doesn't actually make you stronger and may actually make you weaker. But if you put yourself in the furnace of God's love, the furnace of God's gospel, letting the gospel get deep inside of you, giving you a willing heart, willing to be wrong, willing to open up your shame, willing to let people in because the gospel is doing a work in you, then you can actually find your life beginning to actually transform and and, and become changed in a way that actually makes you stronger than ever. It's about how you change. He says the gospel is what has the power to actually make you righteous functionally before God in your actual life. But these legalistic scholars are doing isn't isn't going to help. Um, it's not just about how you change, though. It's about why you change. And that's what we're really going to get to at the heart level. It's about why you change. See, paganism and legalistic religion are the same thing, Paul says, where motivations are concerned. We've looked at this a couple times already in the, Paul's letter to the Galatians. He says in verse 1, don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, realize, he says, again. He says, you used to be slaves, then you came to Jesus, and now you're turning back to slavery again. 
Now, what's ironic about that? These were not Jewish believers. These were Gentile believers. Their background was paganism. These are, are Christians who, you know, before they were Christians, they were copulating in the streets. They were bowing down and worshiping pagan gods in pagan temples regularly. These are people who were known for their violence and their immorality and their backbiting and their backstabbing. And then they came to Jesus and found a way of, of grace and the gospel and acceptance before God on account of what Jesus had done for them. And now these people who had engaged in, in all of these immoral behaviors are being tempted to turn instead to the most legalistic, extreme, rigoristic system of moral self-help, obedience and regulation and law-keeping in human history. And Paul says they're actually going back to where they were because it's the same thing at the heart level. What a pagan lifestyle of doing whatever you want, your hedonistic pleasure, your worshiping false gods, it's the same thing as these Judaizing teachers are giving them at the level of motivation. He says, I don't want you to be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. These are both basically transactional approaches to relating to God or the gods. Under paganism, this was the case. Within paganism, people worshipped various gods based upon what they wanted in this life. If you were a fisherman, you would worship the god of the sea. If you were a sailor, you would worship Poseidon. If you were a farmer, you would worship the gods of agriculture. If you wanted to be desired and desirable and have a fantastic knockout, lights-out love life, you would worship the god of beauty and desirability and love. You would go to that god. You would go into that god's temple. You would make an offering to that god in order to appease that god and gain that god's favor and blessing in that area of your life. If you were a warrior, you would go to the temple of the god of war and worship the god of war in order to get success at the thing that really mattered to you was which was conquering in your warfare but nobody wanted a relationship with the god of war no one wanted to be intimate or close to the god of war nobody wanted to have a personal intimate relational union with poseidon you know the, the relationship with these gods was fundamentally transactional you were paying them off in order to give you a particular blessing because that's the thing that you really wanted And Paul is pointing out how with religious legalism, it's no different. They're returning again to the same yoke of slavery. Paul is saying that if your relationship with God, if your obedience to God is fundamentally in order to gain his blessing, then there's something fundamentally transactional about your relationship with God. You're paying for his love. You're paying for his favor. What do we call it when a man stops in a corner in a back alley and pays someone to love him? That's what you're doing with God. That's how you're treating God, as if he's just doling out tricks for pay. It's not loving God, it's using someone. And this means that at the motivational level, you're not really loving God, you're using God in order to get what you really want in life, which is his blessing or heaven or whatever. You're treating God like an instrument instead of like an end. I've shared before with St. Augustine in the, uh, beginning of the the uh, you know fifth century you know, about four hundred uh, the doctrina Christiana on on Christian teaching or on Christian doctrine uh, on Christian instruction he talks about the difference between instruments and ends an instrument is something you use toward an end an end is something that is it's an end in its own right and he says that ultimately you know you look at a these aren't his illustrations but you you take a pencil and you say is this pencil an instrument, or is this an end? Well, it's an instrument. Why? Because it has a purpose bigger than itself. 
which is writing and communicating. And so it's an instrument. And you look at a toaster oven, and toaster oven is it an instrument or is it an end? An end is cherished in its own right. An instrument is something you use to accomplish some end. Uh, well, a toaster oven is an instrument because you use it to make toast or casseroles or whatever Greek people did. I don't know uh, with their toaster ovens. But, uh, but then you look at a human being. Is a human being an instrument or an end? Well, he points out, does a human being have a purpose larger than herself? Yes. Glorify God. Therefore, human beings, even though we're not to treat each other as instruments, we are instruments before God. And ultimately, what about God? God alone is not an instrument. God alone is the end for which every instrument ultimately exists. God is the one for whom we were made, who is to be treasured and delighted in for his own sake. And never, ever, 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 ever is God to be used towards some higher end because that higher end would itself be God. And legalism, like paganism at the heart level, uses God, uses obedience in order to get leverage for whatever it is that we really want, which is our real God, what we're really bowing down to and worshiping. And so he says, you're returning again to the same yoke of slavery. Yeah, you were pagan. Now you're going to hyper-religious Taliban-level fundamentalism. But it's the same thing. You're using God. You say, Greg, if everything's grace, then I won't be motivated to obey God. And yet, if when you lose your fear and you lose all your motivation to obey God, then your only incentive for godly living was fear. You weren't doing that for God. You were doing it for yourself. You were treating God as an instrument instead of an end. You were using God. And, and, and if that's the case, then, then it was never real obedience at the heart level. Somebody can live outwardly obedient in every way, and yet at the heart level, they're doing it for their own sake because there's something they want. Charles Spurgeon told the story of a, of, of a farmer long, long ago who who... He loved farming and he loved his king. And one, one harvest, there was this massive, like seven foot long carrot, perfect without a single blemish. And he looked at this. He's like, I can't eat this carrot. I am not worthy to eat this carrot. This is a carrot fit for a king. This is a carrot fit for a monarch. I'm going to take this to my lord. And I'm, and he goes to the castle in three days journey with his wagon carrying this ginormous, perfect carrot. Green top, frilly on top. No little bumps, just smooth with ribs all the way down. It's fantastic carrot. He takes it to the king. He enters the king's presence. He's invited to come forward with this carrot. And he says, my lord, the king, I love you, my king, with all of my heart. And this is the most perfect carrot that my field will ever produce. And so I want you, my king, to have it because I love you. And the king looks at him and he's moved and he sees his affection, his heart, and his love. And he says, oh, I have lands next to your farm. I will give you these lands that you might farm them to continue producing this amazing, this amazing vegetables. And so he goes back to his, his farm and he's rejoicing because he's been blessed by the king. And there's a nobleman in the court who overhears the whole conversation. And so the next day he thinks, ah, if this is what a carrot gets you, I raise horses. And so he takes his most perfect, brilliant, shiny black stallion that towers over all of the other horses and he brings it before the king into the court. He says, my lord, the king, this is the most perfect stallion that my fields will ever produce. They are not worthy for me, but only for a king. And I will have you take it from me. And the king says, okay, thank you. 
nobleman sitting here thinking, getting a little frustrated, looking a little confused. And the king just looks at him and said, when that farmer brought me that perfect carrot, he was doing it for me. He was giving that carrot to me. But when you brought that stallion in, you were giving that stallion to yourself because you thought you could use me to get something for yourself. You see, it's all about the heart. It's all about that heart level. Moralistic religion, what Paul here calls the circumcision, and worldly paganism, what he calls uncircumcision, are the same system at the motivational level. There's no difference. Neither is driven by love for God. Both use God or the gods or the things of this world. Both are fundamentally transactional. And in verse 6, Paul says in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, neither legalistic religion nor immorality have any value. It's like Paul says in Colossians, he says legalistic religion, it can't make you better. It's, it's part of the problem and not part of the solution. It's still focused on us. It's self-serving. It's God becomes a tool, something to be used, your cog in the machinery of your life agenda of self-transformation. And even in its most rigorous form, what he says in Colossians 2, he says, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Not just a little bit of value, but they have none at all. They lack any value. That's They're part of the problem. They're counterproductive. They're the thing that can kill these Christians in Galatia if they turn to it and embrace it. The big difference between the gospel and moralistic religion is, is the issue of motivation. One obeys God to get something else. It's transactional. Using God. Obedience is a means to an end. And that kind of obedience is not real obedience. But once you put salvation and blessing first as free gifts, once you remove the fear of judgment as your primary motivation, then you're looking at obedience that's motivated out of something far deeper, something more beautiful, something more lasting. Then you're talking about obeying God out of a motivation of love for God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. That's the main difference. We've talked about the difference of how you obey. We've talked about the difference of why you obey, that difference of motivation. And so now, let's talk about how the gospel actually drives real change. It drives real change by freeing us from transactional relationships with God. Verse 1, Paul says, It is for freedom's sake that Christ has set us free. So stand firm then and don't let yourselves be burdened by a yoke of slavery. You see, the gospel declares to you as a believer what God is saying to you in Christ. He's saying that if you have my son, you are already forgiven of all of your sins and you are already acceptable to me. There's nothing that you're going to do that's going to make me love you less and there's nothing that you're going to do that's going to make me love you more. The gospel is God declaring to you that you're already righteous and worthy and acceptable in my presence. The gospel says is God saying that I delight in receiving you. You can come to me with armfuls of sin in denial about 
bigger armfuls of sin. And I am delighted to receive you. I'm ushering you into my house. I want to spend time with you because you already measure up. The gospel says that the righteousness of Christ has already been imputed or credited to your account. This means that you have Jesus' resume. This means that your resume says that you fed the 5,000. Your resume says that you raised Lazarus from the dead. Your resume says that you always did what pleased your heavenly Father because you loved him. This means that God the Father looks upon you. you you're not going to embellish that resume by you know, having a longer quiet time every day. You know, God, but I also had a great worship experience today. Well, that's really impressive next to the righteousness of Christ. You, know, you can't embellish that. You know, God is looking upon you the exact same way that he looks upon his son. He cannot love you any more because he sees in you the son he loves. It's a secure foundation in which to be known by God and loved by God in all of our brokenness and all of our scandalous shame. It's the gospel. It's what it means to be, to be loved by God. And it's incredibly liberating. It is for freedom's sake that Christ set you free. Why would you go back? The gospel is the only thing that can get you off your self-oriented, self-motivated performance religious treadmill. It's the only thing that can break you from the psychological need to use God in order to make yourself feel acceptable or worthy. The gospel is the only thing that can get you off that treadmill so that instead of using God, you can actually begin to love God because he has loved you and loves you and delights in you now because he's your father and he's proud of you and he's pleased with you and he has joy in your presence because everything else you've done previously was offensive to God because your motivation was you and not him. The gospel is actually the beginning of obedience. It's the counterintuitive economics of the gospel. You know, Jesus says that it's, it's only if you love me that you're going to obey me. And, and so how do you love God more? How do you grow a love for God at the heart level, at the motivation level? And he says, it's the passage that we, we read earlier uh, uh, from the gospel, where Jesus is in the, the house of, of, of Simon the Pharisee. And uh, he's having dinner with all these Pharisees, these kind of religious good people. And, and this sinful woman, she's lived a life. She has been in all the wrong places with all the wrong people. And she comes in and she gets behind Jesus and begins weeping on his feet. And her tears are falling on his feet. And she pours an expensive flask of, of perfume on his head and anoints him with oil. And she can't stop kissing his feet. And, and all of the religious leaders are sitting there thinking, if Jesus knew what kind of filthy woman this was he would not let her touch him and jesus he knows their hearts and he says simon i came into your house and you have not loved me simon you have no love for me you didn't kiss me when i came you didn't wash my feet you didn't anoint my head with oil these are all customs that would have been expected by an honored guest you don't love me simon but this woman she loves me she's anointing me with her with with her tears and with her perfume and she can't stop kissing my feet and the difference between one who loves me and one who doesn't love me simon is because she loves me because she has been forgiven much and you don't love me because you have not been forgiven much simon it's counterintuitive. But he says, he who loves much, or he who is forgiven much, loves much. He who is forgiven little, loves little. You know, I always hear Christians say, you know, we have to balance very finely on the, the path between the two chasms on either side, which are, you know, of course, legalistic religion and grace. And you, you don't want to go too far in either direction, lest you, you mess up. You fall off the wagon, so to speak. And the problem is the way that Jesus and Paul both set up the paradigm is different. 
Paganism and legalism are both on the same side. And obedience, love-driven obedience, and radical grace are both on the other side. You know, the more you're preaching grace, the more you're calling people to obedience at the heart level. You can't get obedience without the gospel. Jesus said in that same passage, at that same setting to Simon Peter, he said, imagine that a, a guy, a rich guy forgives two different people their debts. One of them, he forgives $10,000 that he owes him. You just write it off. You don't have to pay me back. I forgive you. Ooh, hey, awesome. And the other one owes him $30 million. And he says, I forgive your $30 million. Don't worry about it. I got it covered. You're free. Woohoo! Yeah! And he asked Simon Peter, which one loves him more? The one who was forgiven a little or the one that was forgiven the really big debt? The one that's forgiven the really big debt. It's the counterintuitive economics of the gospel. How are you going to obey God at a heart level motivated for love? You have to be forgiven more deeply. You have to be forgiven of bigger stuff. You have to be more and more aware of the radicality of God's love for big shameful sinners like me and like you. Because the more that grips your heart, the more it captures your heart and captivates you with a vision of its beauty, the more eager you are going to be to suffer the pain that's required in order to obey His commands. It's about how you change. It's about why you change. And it's the Gospel that gives us the power to change. Let it sink in, friends. The beauty of His love. Because this is the offense of the cross. What, what in verse 11 Paul calls the offense of the cross. It's offensive. Why is it offensive? The cross is offensive because the cross tells me that I am so bad that Jesus had to die for me. And it tells me that there is nothing, that I am so weak and so broken and so sinful that there's no way that I could do anything to fix it. And that's hard to hear. I mean, let's, let's be honest. I am a, I am a very proud man. I was always a proud kid. I wanted to contribute. You know, I, I want to contribute something to my salvation. I was the gifted kid. I graduated high school with 32 credits to the University of Virginia before I started. I was number four in a class of 600, and I can tell you why the valedictorian, salutatorian, and whatever that other one is, why they didn't deserve it, because they took easier, cheaper, weaker, wimpier classes. I had... I, I, I took 17 years of college before I ran out of degrees. I get that. It's offensive to people like me. I don't want charity salvation. I want to earn it. I want to be good enough for it. I want to deserve it. I want to get straight A's on my spiritual report card and not because I'm stealing someone else's report card. I don't want it on charity. The gospel strikes a death blow to my pride. It's because the gospel tells me that I need charity from God. The gospel tells me that I can't earn it. It's like St. Francis of Assisi said, we are all beggars. It's the offense and the scandal of the cross of Christ. And unless we we can let go of our proud and arrogant desire to earn our own salvation and deserve it, to contribute something. Jesus and St. Paul both agree that until you can let go of that thing, you cannot be saved. Jesus said it is the poor in spirit who are saved, who are blessed by God. That is, people who spiritually have nothing to offer, the spiritually bankrupt, the morally bankrupt, the nothing in my hand I bring but simply to thy cross I cling kind of faith. Jesus plus nothing, which is salvation. 
You know, it's all grace or it's nothing at all. It's the offense of the cross, that only the cross can enable me to love God. Only that radicality of God's mercy in giving up his son can actually motivate me to actually want to obey God for his sake and not for my own. And only that kind of love can create a lasting obedience in a Godward direction because Jesus died for me when I was his enemy. I read a story some time ago about two brothers, late 19th century, David and Luke. They lived together in a small apartment in New York, in Manhattan. Uh, it's over 100 years ago. And the, the older brother, David, had grown up to be the son that any parent would long to have. David was honest. David was responsible. David was dependable. He worked hard at his job as a longshoreman, worked long hours. And, and even through his parents' waning years, he continued to ship them food and gifts and money whenever they needed, whatever they needed to get by in their final days. And as they passed away, he then took in his little brother Luke, who was still in his late teens. And his little brother Luke was, was different. Um, the younger brother had always been rebellious, uh, seemed unable to hold down a steady job, often was associated with the riffraff of the city. It would be honest, he was the riffraff of the city. He wasn't hanging out with the wrong crowd. He created the wrong crowd. He was the wrong crowd. To be honest, Luke, Luke was a problem. And, and David was not a fan of, of Luke's life choices, but he always took him in and he always set food before him. And he was a dependable ear to listen whenever Luke needed to talk. He loved his little brother. And he prayed for his little brother every day. And in spite of the fact that the younger man had had numerous run-ins with the police, uh, he was always in fights. The care and concern of his older brother was constant. And then one night it happened. Luke was involved in a a knife fight. And he and the other man fought viciously. It was pretty savage. And... The fight resulted in the stabbing death of the young brother's opponent. And when the fight was over, Luke's shirt was covered in blood. And just as the fight ended, the police arrived at the scene and they began to pursue this young man wearing the bloody shirt. They chased him around corners and up and down alleyways. He he had to get rid of this shirt. He knew that. He wasn't thinking clearly. He was in a panic. So he, he ran home and, and, and immediately threw off the bloody shirt and threw on another one and slipped out the back fire escape. And, and his older brother, David, could hear the commotion. Something was going on. He could hear the steps coming up the, the coming up the front steps. He, he walked into his brother's room to check on him, and there he found the bloody shirt stained and sitting in the corner on the wood floor. And he knew his brother well. It wasn't hard to surmise what had probably happened. And so quickly, the older brother pulled off his own shirt and threw on the blood-stained shirt of his little brother. And no sooner had he finished than the police rushed into the room and arrested him for murder. He never claimed innocence, but remained silent through questioning and through a very hasty trial. And the verdict came down as guilty. And he went to the gallows for a crime that he did not commit all so that his little brother Luke could go free, all because the guiltless one had taken blame for the guilty. Friends, that is what Jesus did for us. And he is not ashamed to call you his brother. Hebrews 2, Bible says so. 
because he delights in you and he took your shame and he took your guilt and he took your offenses and he took all of the rejection and judgment that you and I both deserve and he shouldered it. He put on that shirt and he went to the cross and he did so without speaking a word in his defense because he did it motivated out of love for you so that you could go free. It is for freedom's sake that Christ set you free. Do not return to the yoke of slavery. This is all because He loves us. By faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. That term hope is confusing in English because in English it it communicates uncertainty, while in Greek it actually communicates certainty. Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. A hope is, is what gets you out of bed on the worst day of your life. Your hope is what gives you strength when you find out you've got stage 4 cancer. Hope is what can sustain you when your marriage falls apart or when your kids' lives go in the wrong direction. And he says the hope that we have is that a day is coming when we will not only be declared righteous before God, but we will stand before Him actually transformed, actually changed, no more sin, no more mixed motives, no more half-hearted worship, no more falling asleep while trying to pray, no more trying to cover up our own sin or hide what we've done. It says in verse 5, By faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope this righteousness that has already been declared to us, actually working its way through us so that at the last day we trans- we're transformed. He says, by faith, we eagerly await it. We don't make it happen. We're waiting on the work of God's Spirit. We're waiting on the gospel to go deep. And we're waiting for that day when we will finally be transformed. We will see Jesus and we will be like him. Even to these Galatian believers who seem so ready to walk away from it all, Paul reassures them after reminding them of the gospel. He says in verse 10, I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. It's the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of his grace that drives real change because there's something aesthetic that happens, something Beauty oriented that happens when we see God, when he opens our eyes to see the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of of who he is and who he is for us as he gives himself up for us. Beauty captivates us. It captures our heart and it inspires your soul. I spent some time in Nicaragua recently and there's a town called Catarina that we always visit. It's a little town up in the, the, the... what are called the white villages, the Indian villages up in the mountains. And, and as you get into the town, you're just winding and winding and winding around and back through these alleys. There are flower cellars everywhere. And, and you get this sense that, that you're constantly going uphill at a slight grade, but you don't really know what's going on. And then you get to this plaza at the very end of the town, and there are all these vendors. And then at the very end, at the back, there are two or three little restaurants clustered together with tiny little passageways between them. And as you walk to the restaurants, and you walk between them through this tiny little compressed passageway, then as you get to the back, it opens up. 
and you realize that you are at the very lip of a volcano and its caldera is dropping 500, maybe a 1,000 feet straight down below you and it is four miles across all the way around with a lake, a crater lake at the bottom and there are Nicaraguans who are traveled from Managua and from other towns and cities to just sit there all afternoon and look at the beauty of something that is so massive, so huge, so overwhelming, and so stunningly beautiful. Friends, that's the gospel. That you would look upon it and gaze upon it and let it sink deep down that you are loved and secure and delighted in and God is holding you in the arms, in His arms and He is never going to let go of you because you are His fully, finally, and forever. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith is expressing itself through Love. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts a great, massive, infinite love for you that flows from the fact and the reality that you have loved us and that you're not letting go. Father, we consecrate to you the elements on this table that you would preach good news to us that we might be changed and become your agents of love and grace bringing the welcome of Jesus to this great city. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.